Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads podcast for the week of April 15th, The Things That Matter. I'm your host, Dan Creeder, and this week, Dan Belton and I will talk about the impressive recovery in risk assets over the past couple weeks and what's been driving them. Further, we'll talk about how those same factors will shape the path of spreads going forward. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creeter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the podcast. Over the course of the week since our last edition, the market tone has remained extremely positive, and risk assets have now retraced a significant portion of initial losses. Dan, what's been driving the impressive performance in risk assets over the past couple weeks? Yeah, so since spreads hit their wides on March 23rd, it's been pretty much a one-way street narrower. They're in 166 basis points now from their peaks, and they're only about 135 or so basis points from the narrows that we saw back in February. Additionally, primary market has been really strong and exceptionally active. Issuance is a hard-to-believe 65 to 70% ahead of this point in recent years. And while new issue concessions have been high, you know, all things considered, it's been pretty healthy. As you said, equities have retraced about half of their losses. And you know, this has been driven really by positive headlines, both around the coronavirus and continued strong response from the Fed. Yeah, I definitely think that a growing expectation that the economy might be able to reopen in the next couple of weeks or months is partly responsible for the move in risk assets. But I think the main one is the policy that's been put forth by the government and the Fed at a really opportune time to try and combat the economic damage wrought by the coronavirus. I mean, specifically the liquidity facilities that the Fed has installed have done a fantastic job to counteract the potential for any insolvencies that we typically see when credit markets seize up like this. You just see companies run into short-term cash problems when they can't access capital markets, and that forces some potentially otherwise healthy companies into bankruptcy. And the Fed acted quickly enough and strongly enough to prevent that from happening. And so we've seen a justifiable risk on tone in credit markets simply because of what the Fed has done. And because of this, for a while, we've been targeting the release of the operational details behind some of these Fed facilities as sort of an inflection point for risk assets. We thought that if the Fed can continue to surprise the market in a positive way by providing more and more credit to the street, that the Fed could continue to support risk assets. On the other hand, if the details of the Fed facilities were disappointing to the market, we might see a turn in risk sentiment. We thought that a positive surprise was more likely, and it turned out with the details released on last Thursday, that turned out to be the case. Yeah. So we knew that a few of the things they announced were coming. The Main Street lending facility was discussed in the CARES Act, and the Fed delivered on that. But the Fed was also able to 
deliver a positive surprise with respect to the corporate credit facilities. And the positive surprise came in a couple dimensions. So first, they're now buying up to $500 billion in the primary market and $250 billion in secondary. And this is up from $100 billion in each when they're released back in mid to late March. They're also now entering the high yield market. And so that has sparked a significant rally in high yield as well. Although we caution that as of right now, it's just a small sliver of the market that's going to be eligible for Fed purchases. So the Fed is only now buying recent and future fallen angel debt. However, the market is likely taking this as a sign that this could certainly be a precursor to more Fed action. But now I think we're getting to a point where we might want to take some profits and reduce some longs. So we've been saying for a couple of weeks now that while these Fed liquidity facilities do a great job in extending credit to the corporate sector, they're very limited in what they do to fundamental credit problems. And even Secretary Mnuchin has alluded to this bridge of credit just getting companies over this economic shutdown. But then beyond that, there's a lot more uncertainty that lies. Yeah, it's a great point. And I think it's worthwhile to actually dive into the details of some of these programs to demonstrate why they're really more liquidity programs and actually helpful for business credit. And to do that, let's look at the main facilities available to corporations. We're going to have a lot of acronyms being thrown around here. So we'll try to break it down in the most straightforward way possible. So we'll start just by mentioning the secondary market facilities. And here we're referring to the secondary market corporate credit facility wherein the Fed buys secondary market bonds up to $250 billion. And the term asset lending facility, or TELF, where the Fed is buying asset-backed paper, again, in the secondary market. Both of these programs are really aimed at just trying to get market confidence under control. They don't really do anything to help the balance sheet of a company. For example, if they buy a bond in the secondary market of a corporation, that bond was already outstanding the Fed buying the secondary has no impact on that company's balance sheet. These facilities are really just designed to build market confidence. So we'll set aside the secondary market facilities for now because they really have no direct impact on business balance sheets. And instead, we'll focus on the primary market facilities. And here we're going to be focusing on the commercial paper funding facility, or CPFF, the primary market corporate credit facility, or PMCCF, the payroll protection program, or PPP, under the CARES Act, and then the Main Street Lending Facility, or MSLF. And Dan, I think it makes sense for us to just to kind of take these one by one here and talk about the details. But the overriding theme that we're going to be trying to demonstrate here is that the majority of these programs, with the exception of the PPP, the majority of these programs may not ultimately be that helpful to a business's balance sheet in the long run. And I'll start here by talking about the Commercial Paper Funding Facility, or CPFF, that currently holds a size of $100 billion and is a facility wherein the Fed will buy commercial paper straight from corporations rated A1P1 or A1P2 at different levels. A1P1 corporations are able to print commercial paper at OIS plus 110 basis points and A2P2 at OIS plus 200. We talk about these levels just to demonstrate that these loans really aren't at advantageous levels for a corporation and really would only be utilized for a corporation that can't access more traditional means of credit. CP is currently printing below OAS plus 110 for A1P1 corporations and likely below 200 basis points for A2P2, even though that data is kind of hard to come by. Most recent indications is market rates are well below the rates offered by CPFF. So 
we expect this facility won't get very much take up. And if it does, it's going to be by companies that are going to end up be paying a somewhat punitive rate for access to the facility. Dan, why don't you walk us through the finer details of the primary market corporate credit facility? Yeah, sure. So we got most of these details back in mid to late March. There were some minor revisions to this program that the Fed released last week. First, there was the increase in the size, like I mentioned. So now the Fed is willing to lend up to $500 billion in the primary market to investment-grade rated companies or companies that were investment-grade as of March 22nd, as long as they still have a double B rating. So the bonds that the Fed buys through this facility are four years to maturity, and they are informed by market rates plus this facility fee of 100 basis points. So it's not entirely clear how much use this facility is going to get because of that facility fee. I imagine that it'll be used more likely for the less liquid borrowers, maybe high beta borrowers, as well as in times of market stress. But I don't see it being a staple of corporations borrowing programs, provided that they are one of the more liquid corporates. So also for reference, in the past four years of our issuance database, we find only four deals that came with a new issue concession of 100 basis points or more. Now, granted, these were all in the past month, so it's possible that some borrowers would be better off using this facility. But by and large, we expect this to be used in times of market stress. Yeah. And even in the best of times, the primary market corporate credit facility is just providing financing. They're not giving grants or anything. It's just financing that's going to end up increasing the leverage of a corporation's balance sheet. Which brings us to the next facility, the Main Street Lending Facility, which really works quite similarly to the PMCCF. It just has a different target audience, whereas the primary market corporate credit facility goes after larger corporations that will be issuing bonds into the Fed. The Main Street Lending Facility is going after smaller businesses via loans through the banking system. The Fed's not going to actually engage with small and medium-sized businesses. The Fed's just going to provide financing to banks who then provide loans to the SMEs. And the banks are required to keep 5% of any Main Street Lending Facility loan on balance sheet to ensure skin in the game and that credit work is done by the banks providing loans. But at the end of the day, it's very similar programs, just the Main Street Lending Facility is getting funds to smaller businesses with a maximum size of $25 million. And the terms of the loans are that the rate will be set at SOFR plus 250 to 400 basis points. So effectively, 4% plus is the general highest level the rate can be set at. Now, we went back and we looked at where small business loans are generally made. And it's all across the board, I'm sure, based off of a large array of factors that can't be captured with one number. But a survey that's put out by the National Federation of Independent Businesses put the rate as of March quarter end at just less than 6%. So clearly, 6% loans versus SOFR plus 400 basis points, the Main Street Lending Facility is providing what appears to be advantageous loans. But then you dig into the details a little bit more and you see that there's a 100 basis point origination fee that the borrower must pay the lender upon using the facility. So now we're at SOFR plus 350 to 500 basis points. And then there's also a 100 basis point fee that either the bank or the borrower pays to the Fed, a facility fee that gets paid to the Fed for using that. Now, it's unclear at this point, it's up to the banks who pays the facility fee. It could be the bank, but they are allowed to pass the cost down to the borrower. So if that fee gets passed down to the borrower as well, we're looking at 
Main Street Lending Facility rates as being as high as sold for plus 450 to 600 basis points. And now we're looking at still advantageous compared to where most small business loans are coming, but the advantage isn't that great. And it's worth mentioning here that Main Street Lending Facility loans come with a lot more restrictions than PMCCF bond purchases do. For example, any company that takes a Main Street Lending Facility loan commits to certain things such as over the next 12 months, they will not pay any dividends, they will not buy back any stock, they will not give significant pay increases to their executives, they will make best efforts to keep their payroll employed, things of this nature. There's just going to be a lot more bureaucratically onerous on businesses that take these loans for rates that are advantageous. We're not saying they're not, but they're not that advantageous. And at the end of the day, both with the PMCCF and with the Main Street Lending Facility, you're just getting a loan. And that's just going to increase your leverage, which for some businesses, that might be all you need. You just need to get through these few months where social distancing and lockdown have caused your revenues to fall significantly. And then once your earnings are back, you can pay back that loan off of future earnings. But for many other companies, that may not be the case. Which brings us to the fourth facility, the Paycheck Protection Program, or PPP. And this is the one that really does provide relief. Yeah, so the Paycheck Protection Program, or the PPP, is run out of the Treasury Department, not the Fed. And it's funded by that $349 billion in the CARES Act that was specifically allocated to small businesses. And these loans are eligible to be completely forgiven, so they're really more like grants than loans, as long as the proceeds are used for things like payroll, rent, utilities, and mortgage interest. And so it's for small businesses, generally having 500 or fewer employees, and the loan amounts are up to two and a half times monthly payrolls. So it's designed specifically to get these companies by for a period of two months. And ideally, once they get through this shutdown, their balance sheets are preserved during this time. They don't have additional debt that they then have to pay back. Now, the issue with this program is that the disbursement of this large amount of cash has provided some operational issues. So some borrowers have complained that the loans aren't getting to them fast enough. There have been technical issues with the Treasury's website and application issues. And then most importantly, it's now looking like this $349 billion is not going to be nearly enough to satisfy the demand for this program. And while Republicans are trying to get more funding for this program, it hasn't happened yet. As of this recording on Wednesday, there was a Wall Street Journal article out this afternoon indicating that the program might run out of funding as soon as today. So I know that was a lot of detail, pretty heavy for a podcast talking about these facilities. So let's just back it up to the 10,000 foot view here and reiterate the point that we're trying to make. And that's really that there's been a lot of numbers thrown around in terms of the size of both government and Fed programs so far deployed to address the economic damage from the coronavirus. And the Fed still has about $2 trillion left in dry powder. But of the $4 trillion or so that's being thrown around so far, only $400 billion of it is in the form of actual cash payments to business. That's the $350 billion in PPP loans and the $50 billion in direct cash infusion to the airlines and to Boeing as a, in the form of a bailout. And so the rest of the cash that the Fed and Treasury are providing is really going to just amount to higher leverage once the economy reopens. And as you probably recall, we've been talking for months now about how corporate leverage is at high and likely unsustainable levels at this point in the business cycle. And so this should spell wider spreads, right, Dan? Yeah, coming into this year, 
our readers and listeners will know that we were anticipating a significant repricing in credit spreads this year. And it wasn't because we were anticipating the coronavirus descending upon the world. It was because we looked at the fundamental metrics of corporations, the high amount of leverage and basically deteriorating credit profile in general, and thought that all we would need is some type of drop in consumer confidence in order to spark that repricing. At the time, we frankly, we were expecting it to come from the trade war, which no one even talks about anymore. Instead, we got the coronavirus. Now, obviously, it's been met by a historic response from the government. But still, those same concerning credit metrics hold true. And truly, the Fed has done a great job so far of keeping these businesses operating through the worst of the coronavirus situation. But Everyone's expecting unemployment to get to 15%, potentially 20%, potentially higher than that. I mean, as we sit here right now, unemployment rate's almost certainly greater than 10%, and it's only going to get worse. And even if the Fed gets these businesses to the other side, how strong is this economy really going to be when businesses reopen and unemployment to 20%? Now we start talking about more traditional impact of recession on the economy where we have unemployed workers whose consumption drops and it's going to be a test for these corporations who had weak credit fundamentals coming into the year and for most of them those fundamentals have only gotten weaker through some of these packages that the feds put together whether it's a main street lending facility uh, loan or a primary market corporate credit facility bond it's just further leverage and when your metrics are that poor and you're going into a shaky economy with 20% unemployment it's very difficult to see how some of these corporations are ultimately going to make it through. Now, of course, the counter argument to that is that companies could be quick to rehire their furloughed workers and new businesses could spring up and there's a lot of pent up demand once the economy reopens. And rather than a sluggish economy, we come back from this coronavirus shutdown to one with a lot of exuberance and, and there's a lot more activity. It's obviously not our base case, but it certainly is something that we view as a possibility. And it seems to be a scenario that the market is increasingly pricing in of late. And we look to take advantage of that optimism if we think it will ultimately prove short-lived by taking some profits here, given a truly impressive couple weeks in risk assets. This concludes the most recent edition of Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads podcast. Please let us know if there are any topics you'd like to hear tackled in future episodes. We greatly appreciate any feedback. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts.
Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise it constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 